Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. This is episode 14. I'm your podcast host, Ken Levine. Thank you very much for being here. Well, baseball has begun. And as many of you know, in addition to being a TV comedy writer, I have also been a major league baseball announcer. And I thought I would talk about that on today's podcast. I thought I would tell you how I was able to transform my career. And it's really kind of a Walter Mitty story. And even if you're not a baseball fan, it's really kind of interesting. How does a guy go from one career to a very different career? So I'll be talking about that. And uh, I may embarrass myself, but uh, I'm also going to be playing you a sample of my play-by-play work. That and much more right here on Hollywood and Levine. Well, a lot of people think it is totally bizarre for a TV comedy writer to wind up becoming a Major League Baseball announcer. And I get questioned all the time, how did you do it? And here's the story. Well, first of all, I had a background in radio, as some of you know who have been listening to this podcast, that I used to be a top 40 disc jockey way back when, prior to my writing career. And I've always wanted to be a baseball announcer. From the time I first heard Vin Scully in 1958 calling Dodger baseball, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, like most kids dream of becoming players. But you know how you reach that age where you realize you just don't have the skills to make it to the major leagues? Well, for me, that realization came when I was eight. So the fact that I could still be part of a team and still get to fly on the team plane and go to exotic cities like Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, this sounded fantastic to me. So I I always wanted to be a baseball announcer. Okay, so we flash forward now, and it's 1985, and uh, David Isaacs and I have enjoyed success working on MASH and Cheers, and we had just finished creating a show for Mary Tyler Moore. And I kind of reached that point, you know, the midlife crisis point, where I went, gee, is that all there is? And uh, it kept nagging at me that I never became a baseball announcer, never even tried it. And uh, a friend of mine who I had known uh, a few years ago, 
from college, became an announcer for the San Francisco Giants. Dave Glass was his name. And I remember going to Dodger Stadium and looking up, and there he was in the booth. And I'm thinking, wow, the guy made it. And so I decided at that point, well, you know what? I'm just going to at least learn how to do this and see if anything comes of it. I never really dreamed realistically of making it to the big leagues, but I did think, well, maybe I could get a job as a minor league announcer and at least get a sense of what that world was like, what the experience of getting up every morning and your only responsibility was to call a baseball game that night. So I went to the upper deck of Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder, and I also encountered a a friend of mine who I knew was a former television executive, Steve Leon, and he and I both had sort of the same dream. So we went to Dodger Stadium with a tape recorder and went to the upper deck because we figured, you know, if somebody pays big money for really good seats... They don't want a couple of idiots sitting next to them trying to announce a baseball game. But if you sit high above home plate, and I mean you are above the timber line at Dodger Stadium, uh, those seats were not reserved. So if anybody had a problem with the two of us knuckleheads trying to call play-by-play, they could always just get up and move somewhere else. So that's what we did. And at first, we just traded off innings. But each of us wanted to do more, so we each got our own equipment. And at that point, I really went nuts, because instead of just getting a cassette tape recorder and a handheld mic, I went out and bought a headset mic, the kind that you see announcers wear on all those sporting events. I also got a crowd mic so that the uh, sound would be very full. And then I went out and I bought a portable mixer so that I could put the two channels together and have it really sound big league. And I would sit on the first seat overlooking the field right behind the railing. So I would actually add buy two seats, one for me and one for my equipment. And then I would just drape the crowd mic over the railing and it gave it a nice full sound. And if you listen to my tapes, I mean, I was horseshit, but the tapes sounded really good, really professional. So I would go out to games and so would Steve and he would sit in a different section and we would do these games night after night after night. And I did this for a couple of years and you're sitting up there like I said, uh, way above the action. The ball players themselves just look like ants. It was really kind of hard to see the ball. And, you know, it's supposed to be radio, so no one knows the difference. And I'm going, oh, he's got a good palm ball going there. I couldn't even see the baseball. But we were so far away that the bullpens were in the next area code. And what would happen... After a while, because usually the same drunks and idiots with the pinwheel hats are all sitting up in that section, after a while, some of the, the drunks and the regulars would gather around me and they would bring binoculars and I would buy them all beers and they would keep track 
of the bullpens for me. And they would like hand me notes. This guy is warming up uh, left-hander, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I had my own scouts. Uh, the Dodgers uh, at the time, they wouldn't let me in the press box, but they did say that I could go down to the press box before the game and get the game notes and the statistics and then go back up to the upper deck to Siberia up there. Today, it is so much easier because all of that information is just online. So you can either just print it out or just bring your iPad with you and you have every statistic in the world at your fingertips. But I didn't in those days. And so I would set this up. I had index cards with the defense that I would scotch tape to the front of the railing. And I put together my own score sheet that had a section for the pitcher and a section for notes and little sections for each player so that I could write in factoids that it's a a seven-game hitting streak for this guy and he's been hitting 325 in the month of June, that, that sort of thing. And night after night after night, I would do this at Dodger Stadium. And many nights, I would drive all the way out to Anaheim Stadium, and I would do it there. And after a couple of years of this, I went to my uh, very patient, saintly wife and said, wouldn't it be fun to spend some bucolic summer, you know, in a, in a, a really cool New England town, something like that. You know, wouldn't it be kind of a fun experience? And uh, and she said, yeah, okay. And there was like 120 minor league teams. And I gave her the list and I said, tell you what, you check off only the places that you wouldn't mind spending the summer. And those are the only places that I will send off my tapes. At the time, too, we had two small kids. And she checked off 20 I was kind of hoping she would check off 65, but she checked off 20. And I only sent out tapes to those 20 teams. And of the 20, I got three offers. One was in the Northwest League, something like uh, Eugene, Oregon, which would have been very pretty. And another was Vero Beach in the Florida League, which would have been kind of nice. Uh, But the third one was Syracuse. And Syracuse was triple-A ball, and triple-A is one level below the major leagues. So that's what I wanted to do. And uh, <laughs> and when the uh, owner of the Syracuse Chiefs got my tape and liked the tape, and he, he called the house and he got my wife, and his first question to her is, is this guy serious? You know, because he's looking at my credits. And um, she says, yeah, he's out of his mind, yes. Uh, And so we went to Syracuse. Now, Syracuse, I guess my wife thought was going to be like Tanglewood. And uh, if you've been to Syracuse, you know it is not. It is is, is salt mines. Uh, It's 12 degrees in April, and then one day it's 115 degrees with all humidity and thunderstorms. Uh, and not an awful lot to do in Syracuse. So 
I spent the 1988 season as one of the voices of the Syracuse Chiefs. It was me and Dan Horde, and Dan has since gone on. He is now the voice of the Cincinnati Bengals and the University of Cincinnati Bearcats uh, has also done play-by-play for the Mets and Pawtucket and uh, a lot of great things. He's a truly great uh, baseball announcer and football and basketball announcer for that matter. Um, In fact, if, you know, there's a little bit of trivia, but in the episode of the Simpsons that David and I wrote about minor league baseball called Dance and Homer. I played the part of the minor league baseball announcer for the Springfield Isotopes, but the name I used was Dan's name. I used the name Dan Horde. And then when Homer goes up to the big leagues, uh, Harry Shear did the voice of the announcer there. And that announcer I named Dave Glass, who was my friend from college who went on to become a broadcaster for the San Francisco Giants. There's a little Simpsons trivia for you. Anyway, uh, did that year in Syracuse, and on opening day, I, I kind of had a, a bit of a panic attack just before the first broadcast, and here's why. Uh, you know, I would go to Dodger Stadium, I'd go to Anaheim Stadium and do games uh, three, four times a week. But if I had a cold, I'd miss a couple of days. Or if there was a screening I wanted to go to, I skipped a night. You know how it is. But with this, I was committed to 144 baseball games. And I thought to myself, what happens if after two weeks... I hate this. (laughs) It's like, this isn't really fun having to do this every day. And now I have 120 more games to go. Well, fortunately, that wasn't the case. When the season came to an end, I was depressed that it was over. I loved each and every minute of it. The only problem was that my wife just hated Syracuse. Absolutely hated Syracuse. So there was no way we were going to go back to Syracuse. And fortunately, there was an opening with the Tidewater Tides, which was the New York Mets AAA Farm Club. And Tidewater, there is no such thing actually as Tidewater. It's really the Norfolk area and also Virginia Beach. So I was able to sell Virginia Beach as San Diego with humidity. And at least there, I brought the family out to a a beach town and it was really kind of fun for the summer. Ironically, my partner that first season was Dave Glass, formerly of the San Francisco Giants. Anyway, I did two seasons of Tidewater, and uh, I was told that if you want to send a tape to the big leagues, don't send a minor league tape. Send a tape of a big league game. And the minor league season usually ended around Labor Day, which gave you a window of about a month to go into a major league stadium and record a game. So I, at that point, made some friends with the Angels, and they allowed me to do some games in the football press box of then Anaheim Stadium. And the football press box was way down the left field line, but I didn't care because I finally had a big press box. You know, I I didn't have, uh, you know, people passing malts across the aisle as I'm trying to call a play. So I did a game, 
And the next night, I went back to Anaheim Stadium, and the Baltimore Orioles were in town. And I met John Miller, who was their voice. He later became the voice of baseball for ESPN, and now, in fact, for probably the last uh, 18, 19 years, he's been the voice of the San Francisco Giants. But I, I met him and I said, would you do me a favor um, and critique my tape? And I gave him the tape of last night's game, and he said, okay, and, uh, and that was that. Forgot about it, and about a month later, I'm in a Cheers rewrite room, and one of the writer's assistants ducks her head in and says, hey, there's a John Miller on the phone for you. I'm going, John Miller? Oh, my God, John Miller. And I go to the phone, and, of course, he has this great voice, so it's like, you know, uh, hello, uh, yeah, I can. This is John Miller. It's like, oh, hi, John. Nice to talk to you. Uh, anyway, he loved my tape, and he said there's an opening for the Baltimore Orioles that his number two guy, Joe Angel, was leaving to take a position with the New York Yankees. Was I interested? <laughs> yeah. So he gave me the name of the operations director of the radio station who was doing the hiring, Jeff Bochamp at WBAL in Baltimore. And he said, uh, call him up. So I did. I called him up and he said, yes, uh, John mentioned you. Uh, and he said he was very impressed with your tape. Uh, send me a tape. So I sent him the same tape. And he called up about a week later and he said, okay, this is really good. But now I want three uninterrupted innings where nothing happens, where it's just balls and strikes and foul balls and ground ball to second. I want to hear how you call a game when there's not great highlights and home runs and uh, dramatic walk-offs. So I said, well, the only thing I have is some of my minor league tapes because I only had a couple of big league games, and he said, fine, send one of those. So I did. I sent him a, a Tidewater versus Columbus game, and a couple of weeks later, he called up and said, okay, I'm one of the finalists, one of the four or five finalists. So uh, they flew me out to Baltimore for the weekend, and they put me in a studio with John, and we bantered back and forth, I guess, to get a sense of our chemistry, and uh, had dinner and interviews, and then went home, and they said, we will let you know within a week. And a week went by, and I didn't hear anything. So I figured, okay, all right, didn't get it. But hey, you know, I can always say that you know, I was a finalist for a big league job. And then about a week after that, Jeff Bochum called and said, we want to offer you the job. Now, I don't know, maybe they were negotiating with somebody else and couldn't make the deal. <laughs> I don't know, but whatever, I, I got the job. So that's how I became a big league announcer with the Baltimore Orioles. I have a lot of anecdotes of my screw-ups uh, with Baltimore, but... Um, after one year there, they wanted me to sign a three-year contract, but they wanted me to move to Baltimore, which is not an unreasonable request, except that I was still a comedy writer in L.A. making like 90% of my income writing TV. I really couldn't do that 
and commute from Baltimore. So I, I had to leave. And then a couple of weeks later, I got hired by the Seattle Mariners and the career just continued. But so that is the story of how a TV comedy writer became a baseball announcer. And I would just add one final thing. And that is this, that I know that there are people that say, oh, yeah, well, you got that job because you're a TV writer. And the truth is that, you know, I did not sharpen my comedic skills by spending three years taking all night bus rides and being in snowstorms and uh, hurricanes and lightning storms to learn baseball that uh, I got my job as a baseball announcer because I had something to offer as a baseball announcer. And the fact that I have a sense of humor and the fact that I was able to, uh, you know, do a couple of cheers jokes along the way, uh, well, that was something that I could offer. I was not a former player, so I couldn't do that. So that's kind of how I became a baseball announcer, and I would like to think that I would have become a baseball announcer even if I had not been a writer on Cheers and MASH. Okay, when we come back, I'm going to play you a sample of my work. Ironically, I was uh, an announcer for the Seattle Mariners, San Diego Padres, and Baltimore Orioles, but I also did some fill-in work with the California Angels. And I have a lot of tapes, but they're all on cassettes and they're all in storage. And I don't have that many that were digitized. But one game that I do have that was digitized was a night when I filled in for the California Angels. So what I'm going to be playing you is a half inning of me as a broadcaster along with Bob Starr with the California Angels. Seven Ten Talk, KMPC, Los Angeles. Here come the Angels, last of the fourth inning. It is now five-one in favor of Chicago. Ken Levine filling in for Billy Sample tonight. As the Angels try to get off the floor here in inning number four, Tim Salmon, J.T. Snow, and Damian Easley. Tim Salmon leads it off, and the first pitch by Beret is over for a strike, nothing and one. Tim Salmon struck out on a good heater back in the first inning, so he is 0 for 1. Five runs on six hits for the White Sox, one run, three hits, and one error for the Angels. Bottom of the fourth inning, Jason Beret uncoils, and a bender is outside for a ball, one ball and one strike. In addition to everything else, this guy is so very tough on the road. Jason Beret with a record of 6-1 and one away from Comiskey Park. And he is leading 5-1 tonight. One ball, one strike to Tim Salmon. Salmon swings, high fly ball to left field. Reigns back, leaps up, it is gone. Home run, Tim Salmon, 5-2 Chicago. Salmon with a shot to the right of the 370 mark in left field. 
And just like that, it is 5-2 Chicago. You just get the feeling. You just get the sense in your bones that this is going to be one of those wild ball games. 5-2 is the score now, but you just have that inkling that that is far from what the final score will be. J.T. Snow takes high for a ball, one ball and no strikes. Okay, for Sam on his 20th home run. One ball, no strikes to J.T. Snow. Melvin sets up low and away. And Snow takes high at the bill of his helmet. Ball two, two balls and no strikes. And boy, there is a buzzing from the crowd. They have suddenly come alive. This is a big, big crowd tonight. We mentioned it before. This is sports bag night, a very handsome sports bag given out to the first 20,000 folks in attendance. And we have a, a good crowd. And suddenly, they have something to cheer about. Here comes the 2-0 pitch. That's launched into deep right field. Jackson back. He looks up. Gone! Home run, J.T. Snow. Back-to-back -back home runs by the Angels. 5-3 Chicago. Don't go away. seven for J.T. Snow. So back-to-back -back big flies by Salmon and Snow. And just like that, the Angels right back in this ballgame. 5-3 Chicago. And Damian Easley, who hit a pair of home runs last night, now checks in from the right side. Here comes the pitch by Bray. Pop foul right side. Out of play. No balls and one strike to count. Well, the Angels have won five of the eight meetings between these two clubs, and we were talking about it earlier. The Angels, certainly a ball club that does not have any quit in them. All of the Angel wins have been come from behind victories, and they're trying to do it again. And Beret notches a strike to make it nothing in two. No balls, two strikes. Damian Easley taking a couple of practice hacks. Here comes the pitch by Beret. And it misses off the plate for a ball. One ball and two strikes. So J.T. Snow electrifying this crowd with his home run. And it was his first hit this year against Chicago. J.T. was 0 for 19 before that Homeric hoist. Here comes the wind and the 1-2 delivery now. And that is waved at a miss strike three. Strikeout number five for Beret. One gone for Greg Myers. Well, friends, don't be fooled by imitators. Snapples, 100% all-natural fruit juices are just that, 100% all-natural. From Dixie Peach to Vitamin Supreme, Cranberry Royale to Apple Crisp. Snapple, natural beverages made from the best stuff on earth. And I got to tell you, the Angel broadcasters are so very popular here at Anaheim Stadium because when we visiting broadcasters come in, we always stop by as the pitch is low to Myers, one ball and no strikes. We always stop by to say hi to Bob and Billy, see how they're doing, ask about their families. The real reason we're here, we want that Snapple. They have that Snapple cooler here. Swing and a base hit into left field. Hit off the end of the stick and Greg Myers is aboard. Third hit in the inning for the Angels. 
And Gary DiSarcina will be the batter. The only thing is, I kind of feel sheepish taking a snap from you guys, Bob, because in Seattle, all we have to offer you are these homemade chocolate chip cookies of death that Carol, the press box attendants, makes or builds. And that's really the best we can do. So I try not to abuse the privilege of taking snapples. Now Gary DeSarcina, the infield looking to turn a double play. 5-3 Chicago, bottom of the fourth inning. Ken Levine along with Bob Starr. Bray from the belt, turns a move over to first, and Greg Myers back to the bag. Greg Myers does not have a steal. He has been caught twice this year. Greg actually had a couple of steals last year. But, of course, this year he tore up his knee early in the season, involved in that collision with Mike Greenwell. And so he doesn't figure to do too much running on his own. Swing and a foul ball straight back underneath us on the count, no balls in one strike to Gary DeSarcina on deck. Jim Edmonds. 5-6-0 for Chicago. 3-6-1 for California. Bottom of the fourth inning. So far it has really been a wild ball game and a whole lot of fun to watch. Gary backs out and checks down with Ken Maka. Let's see if the Angels put a hit and run play on here. Bray works from the first base side of the slab. Now he's up on top. And the slender right-hander deals, swinging a high fly ball to left center field. Johnson cruises over, makes a two-handed catch, and scampering back to first base is Greg Myers. Two outs in the fourth inning, and now Jim Edmonds. Jim Edmonds, one for two, rounded a single to center, and scored on the base hit by Spike Owen back in the third inning. The Angels with three runs, that run in the third, and then here in the fourth, back-to-back -back home runs by Tim Salmon and J.T. Snow. For the White Sox, they scored four times in the third, highlighted by Frank Thomas hitting his 38th home run of the year, and they added a run in the fourth. So it is 5-3 pale hose, and here is Jim Edmonds now. Left-hand hitting rookie, holds the bat right down at the end. Bray, ready delivers and misses high and away. One ball and no strikes. Thomas, Martin, Guillen, and Ventura. The interior defense for the White Sox. Reigns, Johnson, and Jackson in the outfield, and Melvin back of the plate. Want to know the count to Jim Edmonds. Again, the crowd trying to shake something loose. Melvin sets up low and away. And misses in that direction. Ball two. Two balls and no strikes. With the two home runs that Beret has allowed here in the fourth inning, he has now given up 16 gopher balls this year. Just in case you were wondering. 2-0 the count. Edmonds taking a couple of level hacks. Again, Melvin sets up low in the zone, and the pitch is on the outside corner. And it is two and one. Spike Owen waiting on deck. So in the inning, back-to-back -back home runs by Salmon and Snow, easily struck out. Greg Myers single to left. Gary DeSarcina flied out to center. And now Jim Edmonds up there with a two-ball, one-strike count. 
Beret again, a very deliberate worker with men on base. Now he brings it, and it is swung on late and sent foul into the second level out of play, and that evens the count, two balls and two strikes. Again, a reminder, tomorrow the final game of the three-game series, Alex Fernandez, 11-7 against Phil Leftwich, who is trying to turn things around. Phil with a record of 5-10, and, and Angel warm-up begins at 12.30 tomorrow afternoon. But don't just listen to us on the radio, come on out. This might be the last chance to see baseball for a while, so come on out to Anaheim Stadium tomorrow. Good matchup. The Angels and the White Sox. 2-2 two, two pitch now is swung on and missed strike three. Edmonds is gone. Six strikeouts for Beret. But the Angels with two runs on two home runs. Two runs on three hits and they leave a man. After four from Anaheim Stadium, it is Chicago 5, California 3. This is the California Angels Radio Network. That will do it for this edition of Hollywood in Labine. Stay tuned for the postgame show coming right up. This was episode 14. If you have not subscribed, please do. Also, uh, a five-star review would be really nice. Uh, But thank you very much for listening. Also, thanks to Adam and Susie Butler, along with Howard Hoffman and John Wolfert. Back next week with more right here on... (laughs) 